Father, we are thankful that you hear our prayer. Uh, the psalmist said, I love the Lord because he hears my voice and my supplication. Therefore, I shall call upon him as long as I live. We've all had the experience of talking to someone. And uh, it became very apparent very quickly that the individual we were talking with was uh, distracted. We, we didn't have their undivided attention their uh, thoughts were somewhere else. Their, their eyes were um, seemingly uh, looking away every five, six, seven, eight seconds to something else. And we could tell that uh, they were preoccupied. Now, you have never done that to us, ever. Uh, you hear us. You don't only hear our words, you hear our hearts. And even when we pray and don't quite say, sometimes, Lord, we get a little hung up and it's hard for us to even say what we want to say. But you, you make sense even when we stumble. You make sense out of even when we stutter along and we can't quite put it in the words. You know exactly what we're trying to say. Because you get our hearts. You know all about us. You understand us. You made us. You know our quirks. You know our idiosyncrasies. You understand our thought from afar. Psalm 139 says. So. We thank you that we can come into your presence and just as our little kids, just as our little grandkids, they want to talk to us. And, and, and a lot of times we're distracted, but when we, make, when we make eye contact with them, they'll just pour out their little hearts. It's the greatest thing in the world. Uh, this is what you do with us. We can tell you everything that's going on. And even when we can't describe it, you still get it. Um, when we pray, Lord, you, as the old Puritan preacher said, God has answered every prayer I have ever asked. He either gave me what I asked or he gave me what I should have asked. We're thankful, Lord, that we come to you with our hearts. And uh, we can talk to you during the day. We can talk to you in our cars. We can just breathe the prayers. We're at work and we've got to make a phone call or send an email. We're so thankful we're in a relationship. The posture isn't important. Which way we face doesn't matter. We don't have to check our GPS position before we pray. We just talk to you. You tell us, Lord, to be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, to let your requests be made known unto God and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. We had a lot of guys here, and we've got anxiety in just about every heart because we're guys. 
We all got our challenges. We all got our stuff. We all got things that are non-Addison keeping us up at night. But you also tell us to cast all of our care upon you because you care for us. And you give to your beloved even in their sleep. And even when we are finally nodding off after worrying for a while and we're exhausted and we can't keep our eyes open, you're at work on our behalf. Thank you for the peace that passes all understanding. Thank you that we can unload our hearts to you and leave it with you and you, and you go to work on our behalf. For the guys that have been in uh, stretches here, long stretches of waiting and are starting to lose heart, I pray that you'll encourage them tonight. We all go through times of prolonged waiting and it just seems like you're not there. But thank you, Lord, for the promise of Isaiah 64, 4. No eye has seen a God like thee who works for those who wait for him. As we're waiting, you're working. Help us to do the work we can do. Help us to do the next thing that's on our plate and entrust you with the rest. Instruct us tonight. Teach us by your spirit. Give each man what he needs. That's our prayer. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We, are, uh, we, we, we commenced a new study last uh, week. And as I said last week, um, you know, I've been, I've been doing men's ministry full-time since 1990. And it all began when I wrote a book upstairs in my bedroom. And I'd never written a book, and I didn't know if anybody would, would read it. It was a book called Point Man, and it was, it's basically Spiritual Leadership 101, How to Be a Spiritual Leader of Your Family. And it's, it's just basic material. And it's the fundamentals of being a spiritual leader. Interestingly enough, it's something that we all should have learned from our fathers. But, and, and a lot of guys, when, when, when you start following Christ, you realize, man, I've got a pretty strategic position here. And you do. Um, so I called it Point Man. The, the idea behind it was uh, we're, we're in a battle, we're in a war. We know that from Ephesians 6. Uh, some of you guys were in the military. Some of you guys have literally walked the point, And you know what that is. You know the pressure. You know the, um, the tension of leading a small patrol of men. Uh, you've got to be alive to all the possibilities that could take you out and take your men out. The snipers, the tripwires, uh, all kinds of things. You've got to sense an ambush before it shows up. Uh, there's a lot of responsibility on the guy walking the point. Well, in the spiritual battle that we face, um, if you're a husband and father, you're walking the point. Uh, what hit me over the Christmas break is that in all the years we've been doing this study on Wednesday nights, and I, th I think Les said we've been going since 2001, um, I've never done the basic principles that I teach all over the country on weekends all the time. I've never taught them here. So basically, I'm going through the outline of Point Man. Now, one of the things that's interesting is that the book came out in 90. I wrote it in 89. That's 25 years ago. And one of the reasons I wrote the book was that the need 
for men to lead and the need, to, the, the need for men to realize their responsibilities and how critical that role is as a husband and father and grandfather, uh, the need was great back in 89 and 90. One of the reasons I want to go through this is that the need has exacerbated. If we had a need back in 89 and 90, we certainly have one tonight in the time in which we are living. Um, in other words, things haven't gotten better, they have gotten worse. And, and there's always a need for leaders. There's always a need for authentic leaders. Paul said, you follow me as I follow Christ. Tonight, I want to talk about a subject. Um, and I'll tell you, I'm, I'm, going to, I'm going to use the title on the, whatever we call this thing, this tape or CD or whatever you, I'm a little behind the times. Uh, uh, the title for tonight is right out of the book. Uh, I'm going to talk tonight on what I would call uh, Save the Boys. Um, when, when I wrote the chapter on saving the boys in 89, there were two difficult chapters when I wrote Point Man. The first one was save the boys because I had so much material. I had actually done my dissertation down at uh, DTS uh, on men. I surveyed a thousand men across the country and asked them, a bunch of questions about uh, their, their faith, about trying to um, apply their faith, find the balance between career and family and their ethics and pornography. I, I mean, I had, I had reams of research and statistics. Um, I had so much material, but I was, what I was trying to do in terms of fathering was put it in a chapter. And I was having the hardest time. I worked for weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks. And I remember one early afternoon, I was so frustrated because I just couldn't make sense. I couldn't pare it down. And I pushed back from that desk and I was, I was so frustrated. And just said, Lord, if you don't help me with this, I, 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 I've got to get some resolution. And just out of frustration, I'm, I thought, I'm going to go take a walk. I'll go get the mail. Maybe the mail's out front. I walked out to the mailbox. I'm going through the mail. And Gary Bauer had sent out a letter with an article. And he said, I read this this past week. I thought it was striking. Uh, wanted to pass it on to you. And it was an article by a columnist for the Washington Post uh, named William Raspberry. Uh, brilliant African-American columnist. Um, and I stood there at the mailbox and read this column by William Raspberry called Save the Boys. And it was like God sent a FedEx letter to me and said, here, here you go. Um, let me quote from Raspberry, what I read at the mailbox that afternoon. And as I read it, when I finished, everything I'd been trying to do for weeks fell into place. And I went upstairs and I wrote that thing in an afternoon. Let me quote Raspberry. He said, if I could offer a single prescription for the survival of America, and particularly black America, it would be to restore the family. And if you ask me how to do it, my answer, doubtlessly oversimplified, would be, Save the boys. 
That's how you save the family. And then I wrote, tragically, the black family in modern America has largely lost its boys. The enemy has effectively removed black males from their God-appointed positions of leadership and responsibility, and he has the same goal in mind for the rest of America. Now, you, you just look at the inner city, and you see this. And you could see it way back then, in 89 and 90. Fathers were removed from the African-American community. In fact, let me just pop over to a quote that I came up with from Richard John Newhouse, and Newhouse wrote this. He says, millions of children, and, and, and listen very carefully if you would, millions of children do not know and will never know what it means to have a father. More poignantly, they do not know anyone who has a father. Now, can you imagine that? Not only not having a father, but not knowing anyone who has a father in the sense of a father who is committed to the mother in a marriage relationship, stable, there, on site, involved, raising children. Not only do they not have a father, they've never seen a father. More poignantly, they do not know anyone who has a father or is a father. He goes on and says, it takes a little imagination to begin to understand the intergenerational consequences of this situation. It is reasonable to ask whether in all of human history, we have an instance of a large population in which the institution of the family simply disappeared. It is reasonable and ominous, for the answer is almost certainly no. There is no historical precedent supporting the, the hope that the family, once it has disappeared, can be reconstituted. Now, here's what's interesting. Last week, I quoted from uh, Andreas Kostenberger, uh, who's a professor at Southeastern Seminary, and he's written this wonderful book called Is a God, Family, and Marriage? I think that's the title of it, which he wrote in 2004. He had to he revised it completely in 2010. And you know why I did? Because there have been such shockwaves in American families between 2004 and 2010. He had to go back and revise the book that was this thick. My point is this. My point is this. Here, Raspberry was talking primarily about the black family. What's happened to the black family, in essence, has happened to the white families of America. You know, it is interesting, let's just be candid here. A lot of times, minorities will come into an area and the white families leave. You know that and I know it. And around here, we tend, the, white, the white families tend to go north. And a lot of people say, I'm gonna get in a gated community because I can be safe. Well, you're making an assumption there. Uh, a, a lot of times, school shootings happen um, because someone from an affluent home in a gated community is not connected to a father. Now, the father may actually be on site. The father may actually live in the house. But that doesn't mean that there is a connection, does it? You see. Um, it is possible for a father to be on site, but to be totally disconnected. Might as well be a million miles away because of the emotional distance. Uh, my, my observation is this, 
is what Raspberry had to say in 1989, a black man writing about his concern for the black family. We gotta save the boys. My gosh, we gotta save the boys in the white community, in the Asian community, uh, Hispanic community. What, what, whatever, the, the race is not the issue. The issue is we've lost our fathers. And what was going on in 89, well, we've just, we, we've just, it's out of control. So you see the roles that we play as husbands and fathers and grandfathers are absolutely critical. I'll tell you something else that you didn't see in 89. I run into guys all the time who are grandfathers and with their wives are raising grandkids. I see this all the time. Some of you guys, this is what you were doing, and God bless you. But that wasn't happening 30 years ago. It wasn't even on the radar. It wasn't even on the map. So you see, the point is this. Last week, we talked about the strategy of the enemy. He has a twofold strategy, and if we just take a step back, we're seeing that he's being extremely effective. Twofold strategy, just to review real quick. Uh, number one, he wants to alienate and eventually sever the relationship that a husband enjoys with his wife. The Bible says, for this cause, a man shall leave his father and mother, shall cleave to his wife, the two shall become one flesh. Uh, if you've been married uh, a year, if you've been married 10 years, 20, 50 years, it doesn't matter. The enemy has a strategy and what he wants to do with you and your wife who have become one, he wants to take the two who have become one and make you two again. He's being eminently successful. The second thing he wants to do is that he wants to alienate and eventually sever the relationship that you enjoy with your children. So what he wants to do with your wife and with your kids is to get a wedge. He wants to get a crack in the unity. And then what he wants to do is to leave the wedge in place. We don't deal with it. We get passive. It's too painful to deal with. We just think, well, I'll let it go. Quite frankly, you can't let this stuff go because it'll foul, it'll fester. This is how gangrene occurs relationally. And before you know it, you've got something really terrible on your hands. So you see, this is a strategy. Um, he's being very, very successful. So we're going to talk tonight about saving the boys. But before I talk about saving the boys, let's talk about saving the girls. Because some of you guys are sitting here thinking, Steve, I don't have boys. Steve, I don't have uh, grandsons. I have granddaughters. Um, what would you say? Here's what I would say. Um, and how many of you guys have girls? Let me see your hand. And how many of you had granddaughters? Great. You got your hand real high there, huh? That's great. How many do you have? Two? That's great. Excellent. That's, that's a neat thing. I noticed that when um, my dad, I'm the oldest of three boys, and uh, his, uh, the first two grandkids were girls. My brother, Mike, his daughter, Becky, and then my daughter, Rachel. And I remember Rachel uh, spent the night with my mom and dad, and uh, what she did often, we lived nearby, just about 10 minutes away from them back then. And anyway, the next night, oh yeah, I think it was the next night, she'd been there you know, over the weekend. 
And I was putting her to bed, and she said, Daddy, can you do something for me? And I said, sure, what is it? She said, tomorrow, can you serve me breakfast in bed? <laughs> I said, what? She said, well, you serve me breakfast in bed. I said, where did you ever hear of that? She said, Papa gives me breakfast in bed. <laughs> he never gave me breakfast in bed. But it's interesting how grandpas with little granddaughters suddenly turn into little wusses because <laughs> their hearts melt, right? Never once did my dad get, okay, you get it. Girls are, they're just, they're just special because they're little girls, you know? You know that great hymn of the church, thank heaven for little girls. Marie Chevalier, you don't know what I'm talking about. Okay. Well, now here's what's interesting, real quick, just real quick on girls. I don't know of any passages in the scripture that directly tell fathers how to raise girls. I, I, have, I can't find one. But I do think this, I think there are principles. And here's how I think it works. More than likely, your daughter will grow up to be a wife. More than likely. It seems to me it makes sense that the principles that are written to men on how to treat their wives therefore have application on how a man is to treat his daughter. Does that not make sense? Um, Ephesians 5, the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is head of the church. Uh, you husbands likewise. Uh, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Would that not apply to your daughter who one day will probably be a wife? So, husbands, love your daughters just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. I'm not saying that's the, the interpretation. I'm saying that's an application. There's a principle. Uh, here's another one, 1 Peter 3, 7. You husbands likewise live with your wives in an understanding way as with a weaker vessel, uh, physically, she's weaker. Uh, she goes through a cycle every 28 days that we don't go through. Uh, you husbands likewise live with your wives in an understanding way as with a weaker vessel since she is a woman and grant her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life so that your prayers may not be hindered. Why would that not apply to a daughter who one day will probably be a wife? And after all, here's what's going to happen. Uh, when your daughter, uh, she, suddenly they're not little girls, they're young women, young men, start showing up. Um, you ever look out the window and you see a young guy in a car going real slow by your house? And you know, he won't stop, he's doing, he just, but you see him doing laps every once in a while? I, I remember that happening a couple times. And uh, you just, <laughs> and, no, yeah. You know. um, well, this happens. So what happens is your little girl suddenly is a young woman and there's the, there are these young men who want to come into her life. How is she going to know what to look for? How is she going to have discernment? I think subconsciously what happens is that young girls, what happens is they take the, um, they take the template of their father's example. And when a young man comes into her life, she runs him through the template of her dad's example. Probably isn't even aware of it. If he's, if he's hyper uh, critical of her, 
he should bounce off. She wouldn't give that sucker two cents. Wouldn't even give him the time of day. Why? Because that's not, that's not how a man acts. Because, see, that's not how her father treated her. Am I making sense? That's not how my dad treated my mom. That's not how he treats my mom. So when a young man comes in who doesn't fit the pattern, he should bounce off. You see? Um, he comes in and he's aggressive uh, physically with her. He should bounce off because she has a father who's a one-woman kind of man. We'll get into that later. We, we play a critical role in the lives of our daughters. So the way I am at home with my wife, there are the principles that I should apply to my daughter. Make sense? Um, obviously, little girls emulate their moms as little boys emulate their dads. You ever, if you have sons, you've caught your son before. I mean, quite frankly, he's just mimicking you. He's imitating you. I mean, he sees you doing something and he's doing it. It's, it's kind of neat. Little girls play off of their fathers. But you're still the North Star. There are studies that show that the father is the central figure in the sexual development of kids and how they view themselves sexually. So we play a critical role. So girls are important. Take care of those little girls. Love them. Fill their little emotional tanks, as you do with sons. Um, protect them. Talk to them. It's very special. What an honor to have them. Um, I want to say more, but I can't. Let's talk about saving the boys. So what do you find in the Bible about saving the boys? Turn with me to the book of Proverbs, if you would. The book of Proverbs is uh, full of wisdom. The interesting thing about the book of Proverbs is, we, you know what we do with Proverbs? There are all these pithy little uh, nuggets of wisdom throughout Proverbs. As you know, Proverbs is full of them. Uh, Solomon was the wisest man who's ever walked the earth other than the Lord Jesus Christ. He was given a gift of wisdom. And I think what we tend to do with Proverbs is it's sort of like Proverbs we kind of treat as a, as a Sunday brunch or a Sunday buffet. You ever go to one of these buffets somewhere in these restaurants and they got about uh, nine different salads you can choose from and then they got about uh, 12 different entrees and about 38 different desserts and they, you know, so what do you do? You go through the line and you just kind of pick one here and then you, oh, I'll take one of those and you take one of those. I think we do that with Proverbs. We'll pick this verse and pick this verse and pick the it's good, we're great nuggets. We forget that the book is a unit and the book is a father writing to a son. What Proverbs is, is the biblical stuff for saving a boy. That's what Proverbs is. If you look at, um, if you look at Proverbs 1, you will see this right out of the blocks. And, and why is this important? 
It's, it's important because what you've got here, you've got 31 chapters of principles that a father is trying to get across to his son. Uh, Raspberry, in his column, the, just the one paragraph I quoted, he said, if you want to, what does he say? If, if you want to restore the family, what do you do? You save the boys. Well, how do you save the boys? You instruct them. You coach them. You mentor them. You teach them. You channel them. That's what you do. Before I read Proverbs 1, Don Lewis, another African-American uh, thinker and scholar, testified before the House of Representatives. I, I had a great conversation with Don when I was in the process of writing this book. And he said this before the House of Representatives. He said, through decades of social policy, the federal government has gutted and plundered the, back, the black community of its husbands and fathers. The result is that boys learn that drugs and larceny are the fastest way of making lots of cash. They simply don't have fathers who can teach and demonstrate the virtues of a healthy work ethic the importance of sexual discipline and responsibility, the benefits of education, and the beauty of transcendent values. This should be taught by a father. You see? This is a father's job. Um, we teach by what we say, and we teach by how we live. Now, once again, I would say to you that the white community, since this was written 25 years ago, we, the enemy has gone full force, not just after the black family, but whites, Hispanics, Asians. He's going after everybody. Because we have, right now, we've got a, a generation of young men. And we talked about this last year. We have a generation of young men coming up who are really having a difficult time with the whole concept of manhood. I don't want to spend much time on this. Um, but... There has been such an assault, and this isn't every young man, but it's many young men. Uh, I talked last year about the five markers that historically have been in place, which lets a boy know that he is transitioning from uh, adolescence into manhood. Now, what are the five markers? Let me just briefly go over them, and then we'll jump to Proverbs 1. Uh, the markers are, number one, complete your education. Whatever it is you need to do to be qualified for the work that you want to do for the rest of your life, get, the, get your education. Well, I haven't finished high school. Why not? There's no reason you wouldn't finish high school. Well, I just dropped out. Well, get back in there and get your degree because uh, any job worth its salt, they're going to say, uh, did you complete high school? No. Oh, we don't hire uh, anyone except high school graduates. Well, I, well you know, I, no. I haven't finished it. Get a GED. Well, I haven't done that. Why not? Well, don't give me excuses. Just go get the sucker. You can do it online. You can do it in the middle of the night between playing video games. Just go get it, because if you don't, you have shut the door on yourself. Now, if what you want to do requires a college degree, go get a college degree. Not everyone has to go to college. You can get a great job in the trades and make good money. But if what you need to do in terms of work, if a credential is to get a college degree, go get the college degree. Well, I'm three classes short. Well, go finish the three classes. Whatever it is, finish it. Just get it done. Well, it's going to take me a year and a half. Let me tell you something. A year and a half is going to come before you know it. 
in a year and a half, you can either have the degree or not have the degree. Go get it. Am I making sense? Finish your education. That's number one. Number two, leave the house. Move out. And once again, here's something else that didn't exist 30 years ago. But we have a, we see it everywhere. We see guys in their 20s, late 20s, living at home. We've said this, that if there's a crisis, uh, someone's in a tough spot, well, we help each other out. Take them in for a while, let them get on their feet. But I'm not talking, we're not talking here about emergency situations where someone, you know, lost a job or something. We're talking about enabling somebody. We're talking about enabling young men to be irresponsible. And how many times have I heard this uh, at a conference? Yeah, Steve, you know, I got a problem. My son's 28. He's still at home. Really? Yeah. Well, how do you feel about that? I don't feel good about it. Well, uh, okay. So what does he do all day? He sleeps. I can't tell you how many times I've Well, what, what? He sleeps. Well, he plays video games most of the night. Can't seem to hold a job. Really? Yeah. Well, are you okay with it? I'm not okay. I think he had to leave. Well, then why don't you have him leave? Well, you know my wife. Oh, okay. Well, that makes things pretty clear, doesn't it? How many times do we see this? Well, I want him to leave. She doesn't want him to leave. Well, you're the father. You're the husband. You're responsible to God for your family. Well, I can't, I can't go there. I'll never have peace. Shoot, you don't have peace now. <laughs> I'm just saying, what do leaders do? Leaders lead. Leaders do the right thing. And you need, I'm not saying it's, it's, it's easy. I'm saying it would be very hard, but you need the wisdom of God and you need to proceed with prayer. But you need to do the right thing because you're enabling a young man who is healthy. No wonder he doesn't have self-esteem. You want self-esteem? Go work. Go work. So they need to leave the home. It's a marker of being a man. Okay, complete your education, leave the home. Number three, make your own money. You don't live off mommy and daddy. You're a man, you go work, and you live off what you got. Well, I really like that apartment. Well, you can't afford that apartment. It's just how it is, man. You can't afford it. Okay, um, this is all common sense. We didn't, we didn't address this 30 years ago. We address it now. Number four is you get married. You don't live with a girl, you marry her. You marry her. Well, you know, we're just, we're just living together to see if we're sexually compatible. Hey, if you're a male, she's female, guess what? <laughs> yeah, it works, man, the plumbing's good. You're compatible. Uh, here's the next one, number five, have kids. Have kids. Having kids will make a man out of you. Because someone's got to grow up. Okay. So what uh, Don Lewis was talking about, we've got it in the white community and every other. Race isn't the issue, it's the culture. Let's go to Proverbs 1. Watch, watch the intentionality of the book of Proverbs 
book of Proverbs is about saving the boys. And I would broaden this to say this. Um, it's not just saving the boys, guys. It's saving our uh, grandsons. As we saw last week, Deuteronomy 6, we just don't do a job, we just don't do our job when we raise our kids. Deuteronomy 6 says, so that you and your son and your grandson were responsible, not just for our sons and daughters, but for our grandsons and our granddaughters. Uh, Dave Simmons used to say that you're not just to raise your child, but you're to raise your child so that your child can be a child raiser. See how that works? So it's save the boys, but it's also save the grandsons. I would say something else it is. It's save the son-in-laws because a lot of son-in-laws uh, are good guys, but they didn't have this taught to them. They didn't have it modeled to them. And now they're in the family, so who's going to teach it to them? That's your job. To talk to them, to encourage them, to model, you see? Uh, it's adult sons. And uh, let me say a quick word here. I'm trying to get into Proverbs 1, but I've got to keep hitting this and this. Some of you guys, this is hard for you because you raise sons to know the Lord, and they're away from the Lord. You see, there's a reason God put the parable of the prodigal son in the Bible. It's to encourage each of us when we have a prodigal. Prodigals will break your heart. And let me tell you something. If Billy Graham could have a prodigal, you can have a prodigal. Franklin Graham is a great leader. Thank the Lord for him. I appreciate his guts, his candor. He'll say things that a lot of Christian leaders won't say. He just puts it on the table. If you read his, his story... There was a time when, I mean, his, he'd gone off the deep end. I, I think he went to Laterno College and was booted. And was just, I mean, the guy was just a hell raiser. Uh, and somehow he got interested. There was a mission somewhere in the Middle East, a couple of ladies he found out about, and they needed a vehicle. They couldn't get around on the terrain. And he talked to his dad, and the, uh, the Bidigram ministry was able to get them a, a Land Rover where they could go anywhere ministering to the people in the back areas. And so uh, Franklin flew over, picked it up in Dusseldorf or somewhere. I don't know where he picked it up. And then he drove it to the Middle East. And he's driving it, listening to the, BM, the BBC, swigging Jack Daniels as he's headed to this mission compound. And his mom's at home praying with her Bible open on the kitchen counter, just praying that God will save him, and the Lord did. But it looked pretty bleak for a while. You see? So don't lose heart if you've got a prodigal. You just keep praying. You just stay in touch. You're there for them. You can't change them anyway. That's only the work of the Holy Spirit. But you can pray. Yes, you can. Now, look at the intentionality of Proverbs 1. And after all that introduction, I'm in Psalms 1. <laughs> I told you I took the wrong pills. Proverbs 1. The Proverbs of Solomon, the son of David, king of Israel. Uh, here's why he wrote the book. To know wisdom and instruction, to discern the sayings of understanding, to receive instruction in wise behavior, righteousness, justice, and equity. This is all good, but next, note the next verse. To give prudence to the naive, to the youth. Knowledge and discretion. Then note verse 8. Hear my son, 
your father's instruction. Note verse 10, my son, if sinners entice you. Note verse 15, my son, do not walk in the way with them. Note chapter 2, verse 1, my son, if you receive my words. Note chapter 3, 1, my son, do not forget my teaching. Chapter 3, verse 11, my son, do not reject the discipline of the Lord. Chapter 4, verse 1, actually I skipped 321. My son, let them not vanish from your sight. 4-1. Hear, O sons, the instruction of a father. All the way through. It's my son, my son, my son, my son. What's this guy doing? He is imparting truth. He is imparting wisdom to his sons because this is precisely what young men need from their fathers. He is connected. He is intentional. He is teaching Right out of the blocks, if you go back to Proverbs chapter 1, beginning with verse 8 down to 19, you know what he talks about right out of the blocks? He talks about withstanding peer pressure. Right out of the blocks. And what's the thing that our kids deal with from middle school, high school? What's the biggest thing? Peer pressure. Oh, my friends are doing it. Well, verse 8 through 19 is all about when your friends are doing the wrong thing. Uh, 110, my sons, if sinners entice you, don't consent. If they say, come with us, let us lie and wait for blood. Let us ambush the innocent without cause. He's talking about peer pressure. You know what he's talking about right here? He's talking about gangs. Boys who are in gangs, a lot of them do it for protection, to survive. Instead of having the protection of a father, they go to their peers. Um... All the way through this book, and I'm not going to show you every reference to my son, my son, my son. Note chapter 4. Hero sons, the instructions of a father. Now, this is really wild. Look at verse 3. This is really interesting. He says in verse 3 of chapter 4, when I was a son to my father, tender and the only son in the sight of my mother. Boy, this is dripping with insight. Let's take a step back. So Solomon's father was the great King David. Now, David, um, David was a man after God's own heart. He was a flawed man. David had many cracks in his armor, as you do and as I do. One of the things where David sinned was that David had multiple wives, and the scripture said in Deuteronomy 17, 17, that the king of Israel was to have one wife. And the problem with multiple wives is you got multiple kids, and then you got all this interaction between the wives and jealousy, and they're all, it's, it's, it's bad news stuff. Uh, David had a lot of heartbreak uh, within his family. The main reason he had heartbreak is because David had the wandering eye, and in a moment of weakness, when he was on the balcony, when he should have been with his men, he sees this gal on her rooftop, He's, you know the story of Bathsheba. She's getting into her jacuzzi or hot tub, whatever he sends for her. He winds up sleeping with her, getting her pregnant, killing her husband. He's got blood all over his hands. Um, he covers it. She gives birth to a son, and after days, the baby dies. That was David and Bathsheba. Later, Bathsheba got pregnant again by David now that they were married and she has a son and the son's name is Solomon. 
I, I think David had great regret over what he had done with his family and how he had handled things. And I think, and I'm, I, 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 as I read this, I think it's dripping with, there's more here than meets the eye. But if you step back and just read between the lines, I think David had great regret over how he had handled his children and the model. And he had this boy, Solomon. And I think he was trying to make things right. I remember I saw an interview one time with Johnny Cash. And he was talking about his, how he used to live and the drugs and the booze and all that stuff. And he was a horrible husband and father. And then at one point in his life, he met the Lord and remarried and um, had a son, John Carter. And, uh, and he said something to the effect. He said, you know, the Lord is very gracious. He not only forgave me my sin, but he gave me another shot at being a father. Words to that effect. I think that's what's going on here. When I was a son to my father, tender and the only son in the sight of my mother, Bathsheba, then he taught me. Who taught him? David. His dad taught him. His dad who was broken and ashamed of what he had done and everybody in the family knew what he had done and everyone in the nation knew what he had done. But he wanted to help his boy learn the lessons from his mouth out of his own failure. Then he taught me and said to me, let your heart hold fast my words. Keep my commandments and live. Acquire wisdom. Acquire understanding. Don't forget or turn away from the words of my mouth. All the way through. He is reiterating what his dad taught him. You see? All the way down here. Uh, look uh, down to, once again. Uh, 4.10, hear my son. Verse 20, hear my son. Uh, chapter 5, give attention to my wisdom. And then you know what he talks about in 5? He talks about sexual immorality. And the chick who looks good. Verse 3, the lips of an adulteress drip honey. I'm in 5.3. Uh, and smoother than oil is her speech. But in the end, she's as bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. He, is, he has gotten instruction, for, I think, from his own dad, and now he's passing it on to his son. Uh, verse 6, she doesn't ponder the path of life. Her ways are unstable. She doesn't know it. Now then, my sons, listen to me. Don't depart from the words of my mouth. Keep your way far from here. Don't, don't go near the door of her house. Uh, or, or you will give your vigor to others and your ears to the cruel one. This guy is intentional. This guy is dealing with the tough stuff. This guy is trying to instruct a son, actually sons, so that they are prepared for a situation before it arises. That's what good football coaches do. Good football coaches uh, will watch the films of whoever they're going to play next week, however they run that offense or defense or whatever it is, and then what they'll do is, they will coach their players and say, listen, you've never, seen, you've never seen this before. You've never seen this formation before. But let me show you how this works. And what's going to happen in that game this weekend, they're gonna, that quarterback is going to do this, but then he's going to do this, and this guy's going to go here. And when that happens, here's what you do. And they drill it into them for a week because it is, in other words, good coaches prepare their players 
for situations which they have never faced before the situation occurs. That's what this father is doing right here. He goes on in 15, he says, drink water from your own cistern and fresh water from your own well. Should your springs be dispersed abroad, streams of water in the street? I mean, it's pretty clear. 18, let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth as a loving hind and a graceful doe. Let her breast satisfy you at all times. That's in the Bible. There's your memory verse for the week. God's not a prude, that's in the Bible. And it's a father telling his son. This is intentional, is it not? He's trying to save his son, he's trying to save his boys. We're up against something else where we are in our culture. One of the things that we are up against is just how we live our lives. Before the Industrial Revolution, life was radically different than it is now. And you say, oh, wait a minute, the Industrial Revolution, man, that, a lot of good things came out of that. Yeah, that's right, a lot of labor-saving devices. A lot of inventions came out of the Industrial Revolution that propelled us. Uh, without going into any of them, you know what I'm talking about. When you read the article in the World Book Encyclopedia, it also, up until 1966, and then they kind of changed it to get it politically correct. But what happened in the Industrial Revolution was, well, let me back up. Prior to the Industrial Revolution, here's how things would work. You'd get married at about 17 or 18, no later than 19. Um, you, um, you were probably a, far a farmer. 90% uh, of the men in the world were farmers. They worked the fields to feed their families. Other men were shopkeepers or smiths of some type. But you'd get married at 17, 18, or 19. You'd have sex with your wife, and nine months later, you'd have a baby because there was no birth control. So if you were going to play, you're going to pay. And then that was so much fun that you decided to have sex again, and the next thing you know, nine months later, you got another baby. By the time you're 25, you got like 17 kids. <laughs> I think it was just crazy back then. So you're 25, you're 28, you look like you're 68 because you got all these kids and you're trying to feed them. Life was hard. Here's how it would work. You'd have kids. The mother would raise the children up until both sexes, boys and girls, up to the age of six, no later than seven. At the age of seven, before the Industrial Revolution, the boys would then go to work with their dads in the fields. Most men were farmers, so they'd go to work with their dad in the field for eight, 10, 12 hours a day. They were with their father. He was the primary influence. If the dad was a shopkeeper, the shop, the house, the living quarters were attached to the shop, to the side of it, behind it, or above it, right? Remember the old movies? Uh, they'd eat breakfast and they'd walk through the door and there was the shop. The boy would be with his dad in the shop, learning a trade. Uh, if he was a cobbler, he'd learn how to do shoes. If he was a blacksmith, he'd learn how to set the fire, work the iron. He was with his dad 8, 10, 12 hours a day. Uh, the moms worked, everybody was work, working. There was no Walmart, they didn't go down there to get cloth and the sewing machine and all that stuff. Everybody was working, just trying to make it. And then the Industrial Revolution came along and factories, came along. And for the first time in human history, men were taken out of the home to go to work. Up until that time, men were with their sons 10, 12 hours a day. The boy would learn and learn a craft, 
he would learn by watching his dad interact with other men, he would learn how to be a man. There were no courses, he just lived life with his dad. Does this make sense? This World Book Encyclopedia says, when men were taken out of the home to work in factories, serious social evils developed. Why? Because to not be in the home with a son 10, 12 hours a day, and to be away in a factory, here's, here's an equation. That meant fathers had less time, and less time equals less influence. Does that make sense? Yep. It makes all kinds of sense. So what do we have to do today in our modern lives? Well, we've got, you and I have X amount of discretionary time. Our, our time is, uh, is pretty much set for us. If, if you're going to make a living, if you're going to cover all your expenses, tuition, all that stuff, there's a lot of pressure and it takes a lot of time. So after you've done your obligations and been responsible, uh, you got X amount of time left over where you can decide what you want to do. This is where we have to really be smart with our discretionary time. I was doing a conference in Arkansas this weekend. And uh, at, some, at one point, we did an open mic question and answer thing. And one of the young guys was asking me, he said, so how do you spend your time? And I was, you know, and, and he said, I'd also like to know uh, in your own life, how, how, many, uh, how many men do you meet with one-on-one? I thought, I, I, no one had asked me that in a long time. And I said, well, I'll tell you right off the bat, I meet with... Uh, I meet with three young men, one-on-one, and that's it. Uh, I meet with my son, John. I meet with my son, Josh, and uh, my son-in-law, Court. Uh, he married my daughter, and uh, so he's got a gold card now, and he's in the club. <laughs> and I said, that's pretty much it. Because with everything else I have going on, I wish I had more time one-on-one, but I don't. Because I gotta make a living, I gotta study, and, and I enjoy doing it, and, you know, I, 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 we all have to say no to things, right? I can't remember if I said this last week. C.H. Spurgeon said, learn to say no. It will do you more good than learning to read Latin. <laughs> There's all these good things we can do. As I get older, I want to be a laser beam instead of a floodlight. Floodlight dispenses light everywhere. I don't want to be a floodlight. I want to be a laser beam. I want to be concentrated light because concentrated light can do amazing things and be extraordinarily effective. But if I'm spread out all over the map doing this and this and this, oh yeah, I can do that. Can you do that? Oh yeah, I can do that. Sure, I can do anything you want. Well, if you don't do it in the church, no one's going to do it. Oh, guilt me into doing it then. Don't let them guilt you into serving. Here's what I've come to in my life. If I'm not called to do it, I'm not doing it. I have to know I'm called. So just think about this for a minute. And this is discretionary time now, because big chunks of my life are already scheduled and sore years. So here's, what I, here's how I try to work it through. Number one, I've got to make a living. If a man doesn't provide for his own, he's worse than a pagan. Okay, it's 1 Timothy 5. So I've got to work. It takes time, you've got to work. Uh, I got a wife, okay? And we just can't wave to each other passing in the driveway. Hey, good to see you. Have a good week. We got to develop our relationship. 
Okay, that takes time. I've got one, two, three kids. They're married, they're adults, but they're still my kids. I'm grateful they want to talk with me, so I have time. And I carve out time. And I'm grateful that I have the time. I make the time. Uh, so let's just add things up now. I've got a job, takes a lot of time. I've got a wife, I've got one, two, three kids. I add that a son-in-law who I spend time with, that's six. Um, I have my church. I pretty much do one thing in this church. I teach. Uh, I wish I could do other things. It's just not possible because of these other obligations. So see, I'm already at seven. And I haven't even gotten to my discretionary time yet. These are what I'm called to do biblically. So Steve, you have, oh Steve, this happened. Uh, Steve, the new book's out, we're really excited. We've contracted with a uh, public relations agencies. We've set up 150 radio interviews for your new book. Really? Oh yeah, we're so excited. We're just so excited. I said, well, gosh, I wish you had called me before you contracted with them because I can't do that. I can't do 150. Well, how many can you do? I can't do any. <gasps> you can't do any. I can't do any. Did you know I've already contracted? Do you know I'm already on work for your publisher with the next book? I've already obligated my time for that book. I don't have time to do 150 radio interviews. Oh, but how are we going to sell the book? You got me. <laughs> See, I contract to write them. You get to sell them. And they were disappointed. Well, they should ask me. But I mean, I wish I had time. But I don't have time. I have to say no. You guys, I want to be a laser beam with what I'm called to do, and so do you. And I'm called to be a husband and a father and to provide, and not just do it financially, but to do it emotionally. Right? Less time equals less influence. So I got to use my discretionary time and say no to some things. Well, man, I want to hit the senior PGA Tour. I want to do that, so I'm going to play three, three rounds a week. How many kids you have? You may want to rethink that. Now, if you want to go out and, and you're playing with your son, that's time together. That's a good thing. But if you're just out there by yourself trying to knock off another, you know, notch or two off your handicap, you might want to rethink that. How many times a week? I'm not saying you don't take time at all. I'm just saying you're smart about what you do for yourself. And you get my heart here, don't you? I've said this before, the most important word in fathering is with. With. If Jesus went to Nazareth, if he went to Capernaum, they went with him. If he went across the Sea of Galilee, they went with him. If he went to Jerusalem, they went with him. They were always with him. It's the most important word in being a dad, is with. So we're going to have to fight and make room on our schedules to be with. That's all. Um, I've told you about the man who was an, an extraordinarily effective evangelist in his denomination. And he was booked two years in advance. Every church in the denomination wanted him. God's hand was unusually upon this man. And he would go in for a week to two weeks and hold meetings and people would come to Christ. He would come home, spend a, a week or two at home, then he would go back out again. This worked for a number of years. Um, it's what he did. It was what he was called to. 
when his son hit 15, 16, things started to fall apart because this young man was becoming a boy. Uh, this young boy was becoming a man. Uh, he was six foot three. When the father was away, he was starting to have difficulty with the mother. This happens when boys hit adolescence. And uh, they were dealing with it as best they can. And he was holding meetings. He got a call from his wife, and his wife said, I need you to come home. And she had had an issue with the son. The son had gotten very rebellious. This was a pattern now. He had been defiant. What she didn't know is that the son was in the other bedroom listening on the other line because he wanted to know what his dad was going to do. And she said, I need you to come home and deal with this situation. And to this man's credit, you know what he did? He called the pastor. He canceled the rest of the meetings, canceled the meeting that night, got in the car and drove home. The next day, he put a for sale sign on his front yard. And this very successful evangelist, who was enjoying the favor of God in his ministry, got off the road, took a small little church on the border of Texas and Mexico, and he did it because he had a son that needed his attention. Proverbs 19, 18, discipline your son while there is hope. But he also knew, as Josh McDowell says, that rules without relationship always turns into rebellion. He needed to spend time with his son because that was his most important calling. And he did that. That's what James Dobson Sr. did when James Dobson Jr. was 16 years old. That's remarkable. We all know about James Dobson Jr. But James Dobson Jr. wouldn't be the man that he is today if he hadn't had a father who knew what his most important calling was. And I remember talking to Dr. Dobson about this, and he said, you know, Steve, um, after those several years and I went off to college. Um, things had changed in our denomination. And a lot of older pastors are retired. The younger pastors weren't aware of my dad. My dad never had the same ministry again. Isn't that interesting? But see, his father knew his most important calling was not in the churches. His most important calling was in the home. It's interesting to me in 1 Timothy 3, that a man can't be an elder in the church unless he manages his own household well. You see, the way that a man has a right to have a ministry in public in a congregation is that he first proves his ministry in the home. See, guys, this is our most important work. And we're always battling it. We're always battling because we're pulled so many different ways. The point of this is not to heap guilt on anybody. You're working your tail off. You're, you're trying to cover all the bases, and God bless you for it. Uh, this is something we battle constantly. But I, I think what we're trying to do here, guys, is, is to look at what really counts, what's important, how do I cover the bases, financially provide, yet still meet needs, not just financially, but emotionally and spiritually. Um,
I'm looking at the clock. Um, you guys don't know me. Uh, you, uh, I never talk about this. How would you know about it? One of the ways I break stress in my life, I don't have a lot of hobbies. I love to go bowling. And uh, I, there's just something about throwing that ball. And hitting those pins and watch those suckers scatter. It's the greatest sound in the world. So I love to bowl. And uh, sometimes I'll even go late at night. Uh, I didn't used to enjoy bowling, but uh, I, I've gotten pretty good at it. Um, I carry an average of about 2.30. And I mean, you know, hey, if you're good, you're good. <laughs> I've rolled, I think, it's either 15 or 16, 300 games over the years. Uh, I didn't used to enjoy bowling. It used to frustrate me. I remember one night in college, I went with some friends, and it was late, and we were in a bowling alley, and, and it got real late, and, you know, we're young, and we're still there, and my friends left, and I'd, I'd been terrible, and I thought, I'm going to work on this. And uh, I looked around, the leagues were gone. I basically was the last guy there. I went up to the... Uh, desk and got a big piece of chalk. Since I'm the only guy there, I, uh, I just walked down the lane all the way to the pins. And then I stepped off from the pins 15 feet and I drew a line. And with that one change in the rules, my enjoyment of bowling went up dramatically. <laughs> when I bowl, I'll just share this with you. When I bowl, I bowl 15 feet away from the pins. <laughs> uh, I'm telling you, you ought to try it. Uh, when I throw a ball, I usually get a strike. If I leave a spare, I usually spare out. That's my average of 230. Now, when I move back to the regulation line, which is 60 feet away, my average drops to 12. Why is that? Well, there's a principle there, and the principle is this. Error increases with distance. That's not only true in bowling, that is true in fathering. It's being with, it's being around, and it's walking through life. Once again, if you look at Deuteronomy 6, it'll give you the pattern. You love God deeply. I think I talked about this last week. You got two principles in Deuteronomy 6. You love God deeply, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And these words which I am commanding you today shall be in your heart. When you love God deeply, you love God's word. So you put God's word in your heart. And then it goes on and says, it goes on and says this. <coughs> and these things you shall diligently teach to your sons. When you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you rise up. It, it's not turning your, your house into a classroom. It's just living life together. And as you live life, things come up. We teach by our words, and we teach by our behavior. 
Hey, Dad, the phone, it's, the phone's for you. It's such and such. Tell them I'm not here. <laughs> really? You just taught. Maybe you teach something else when you read the Bible, but you've just taught by your behavior. Daddy, how come I can watch that movie and you can't? It's because I'm a hypocrite, son. <laughs> and when you grow up, you can be just like me. Well, Daddy, I, I can't watch R-rated movies, but you watch R-rated movies. Yes, I understand. You, 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 it should, it, go to bed. You've just confused that kid. Here's what it ought to be. Daddy, you're so strict. Yeah, I am. My friends get to watch those movies. Yeah, I know. But you're not watching them. And, and you know, son, I don't watch those movies. See, you're not asking him to do anything you don't do. You raise the standard, you set the standard, and you live the standard. That's different, isn't it? Oh, my friends, their dads let them watch those movies. Fine. But you're not watching them. And by the way, I don't watch them. I don't put that stuff in my mind, and I'm certainly not going to let you put it in your mind. That's a whole different ballgame, isn't it? Once again, guys, the point of this is not to heap guilt. Uh, there is one perfect father. And the rest of us have failed. The rest of us are flawed. The rest of us have made so many mistakes. And what does the enemy want to do? What the enemy wants to do is he wants to wrap us up in knots and paralyze us because we look back and, oh, I missed up here and I missed up here and I missed up there. Yes, but you can't live there. Paul said, forgetting what lies behind, I press forward and onward to the high calling of Christ. Steve, man, I just wasn't involved with my kids. Okay, so you weren't. Nothing you can do about that. But what about now? You see it now. You see it now, okay? Then just take some steps. Just take some steps. You see? I, I, I talk with guys and they say, my, my kids won't even talk with me. They're so embittered toward me. That may be. That may be. Maybe at the right time you could just write them a letter and tell them where you failed them and not ask for anything except to say, I would ask your forgiveness and not ask for anything in return. I don't know. But if you'll go to the perfect father, he can navigate you if you have a desire to be an effective father. It's never too late to be an effective father or an effective grandfather. It just takes humility to admit your failures. It takes a teachable heart and a willingness to uh, accept the grace and mercy of the Lord. And I'll tell you, it's his will to reconnect you with your kids and your grandkids. Malachi 4, verse 6. And he, when he comes, will restore the hearts of the fathers to the children and the children to the fathers, lest I come and smite the land with a curse. Our land has been smited with a curse. It doesn't have to hit our homes anymore because of the greatness of Christ. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for hope and forgiveness and mercy. 
you're, you're not here, Lord. The purpose of this was not to heap condemnation. I mean, we could all be under the pile and never breathe again because of our failures. That's not what you want. You want us to simply look to you for help and for wisdom. And you'll give it to us. You'll give it to us. There is no greater blessing I read this week from some old wise Christian who said there is no greater blessing than the blessing of a happy home. Would you give us happy homes? Help us to do everything within our power as much as it depends on you. Be at peace with all men. That includes our wives, our kids, our grandkids. Grant us peace. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.